It's a joy to welcome you to the Sunday morning service of the Hamilton Square Baptist Church. We are here to honor and exalt the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King of glory. He's the hope of mankind. In this season of the year, we are not celebrating Santa Claus and candlelights and sleigh bells. We are celebrating the King of glory come in flesh to save us from sin and to give us hope and joy and peace in our hearts. The verse that we use as we begin our service continues as we continue to listen for the voice of God who is trying to talk to our country. Really, he's trying to give a message to all the world that we need to give heed to the God of heaven and his son Jesus Christ. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. That is God speaking to us today. Has he gotten our attention yet? Because he must be the central focus of life worldwide because the whole world belongs to him by right of creation and by right of redemption. It is wonderful that we can live in the fear of God and not the terror of the COVID. And you will live in fear of one or the other, but you won't live in fear of both. It's very, very interesting, the age in which we are living. I listened to the radio a little bit this morning, and it was more fear and terror and fear and terror and no God anywhere. We are looking to God to forgive our sin and to heal our land. And so it's a great, great day to praise the Lord, to count our blessings, and to, to experience the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our minds. Are you open now to the work of God because God has blessing for you? Pastor Pelletier, what will be our scripture reading this morning? Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Uh, as we get into our scripture reading today, turn your Bibles there and follow along as I read in Psalm 90. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep in the morning. They are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thy anger and by thy wrath we are troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are three score and three, th three score years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be four score years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice 
and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. May God bless the reading of his word. I've been a long time in a series of messages on the greatness of God. That theme is carried through the Christmas story and the Christmas season. The Christmas story is just a part of the great heart and mind of God, the wisdom, the understanding, the knowledge of God, the incomprehensible, the incomprehensible works of God that are displayed at this time of the year. Again, it is such a travesty that we would take what God has done on a divine level and then we would lower it down to the pagan level of, of, of sleigh bells and snow and trees and Santa Clauses and elves and all of the things that are done this season of the year. And to, to call it Happy Holidays, it's not a holiday unless there's Christmas. Christmas is the holiday. And Christmas has no meaning apart from Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. I was just reviewing my notes. I'd like to preach the same sermon again. As this is absolutely amazing. The text of, of the Bible is absolutely rich. Absolutely rich. The mess that man is in. If you stop to think of, of all of the efforts that are being made worldwide, beginning with our educational system, beginning with our political system, uh, beginning with our media, beginning with, with all of the various uh, all of the various occupations of life, all of these things, man is trying to fix the mess that he's in, um, trying to fix the sadness and the sorrow and the sickness and, and all and all of the various results that, uh, that sin has brought to the human race, which started all in the Garden of Eden uh, with Adam and Eve. All of the efforts that are made, and all of them vain, historically, we have religious means, we have psychological means, we have academic means, we, uh, we have means by, by which we try to create an economy and riches and wealth and technology and all of these things seeking to erase <laughs> the awful consequences of sin. And we come to Christmas and God does something about it and we want to substitute something else and we want to find our merriment and our happiness somewhere else. But the great joy comes when we realize that in the great heart and mind of God, He came in the person of His Son. Christmas is about God becoming man. And we started out in the garden on page one of our notes and uh, we, we looked at the fulfillment of the promise of the Son of God becoming flesh. Micah talks about in his prophecy about Bethlehem, uh, one that was going to come forth to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Then we read in the scripture lesson this morning, uh, before the mountains were born or thou, you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Uh, absolutely amazing. You tie Psalm 90 verse 1 with Micah 5 2. Who was it that came? Who was it going to be the ruler? Where was he before before anything was there? Uh, this was in the heart and the mind of God. 
And of course, the word became. Notice the word became. He was not flesh, but he became flesh in John 1.14. And he was the one that was there in the beginning when nothing else was there. He already existed. And I was looking through the Greek text in verse number 3. And apart from him, apart from him, nothing has come into existence. It says not one thing. The Greek text is not one thing. English says nothing, but, but with the emphasis, not one thing exists that Jesus Christ did not bring into existence. Not one human being exists apart from Jesus Christ and his creative activity. You think about that. You, as an individual, you are the result of the creative activity of Jesus Christ, personally. And that's why he's going to be your judge. So, who is this? It's the word becoming flesh. God assuming human flesh. Deity. Assuming humanity, if you please, absolutely amazing. Uniquely begotten, page two of your notes, a supernatural virgin birth uh, on page number two. And with redemptive purpose, a body you prepared me. He took, partook of flesh and blood in order that he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he's uniquely begotten so that Jesus Christ is by virgin birth and by supernatural Holy Spirit conception, he is literally the Son of God in a way that nobody else is. And so this, this, this was a real issue with his Jewish contemporaries, especially with the religious leaders as you go through John's Gospel. You are the Son of God? Wow. That had a meaning beyond beyond what you and I uh, generally will attribute to it. God declared him to be his son, and by nature he was the effulgence of God's glory, and uh, he is actually the exact representation of his nature. He's more than that. He is the substance of his nature. He is the direct, exact substance of God's nature, and he upholds everything by the word of his power, He's the Son of Man and the Son of God. And then we concluded the message last week by saying that Christmas is literally, literally, the humiliation of God. If you will look at Philippians 2.5, you will notice a series of choices. A series of choices. I'm on page 4 of the notes. Philippians chapter 2. Christmas is the humiliation of God. If you'll notice Philippians chapter 2 in that text, there is a series of choices that Jesus Christ personally made. The significance of the choices we make, and this is where we're going to go today, I'm going to build on this today in, in the message. The significance of the choices that we make, really, the choices we make determine the outcome, not the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Now hear me. I, I can't emphasize this too much. It doesn't matter how big the mess is that we are in. It is not the mess that determines the outcome. It's the decisions we make about what we are going to do in relating to the mess. God was looking at a lost humanity. No hope. Sinners by birth. In sin my mother conceived me, the psalmist said. God was looking at a hopeless, helpless mess of humanity. And he had decisions to make, and we were a part of that. He had decisions to make as to what he's going to do with this mess. And let's get personal, what he's going to do with you, and what he's going to do with me. Okay? We've got to bring this to a personal level. 
Christmas isn't about a general celebration for the world. I used to know, and we all memorize the verse, I should, should say we all, almost all of us memorize John 3.16. God so loved the world, but that's not personal. God died for the sins of the world, I knew that. That's not personal. God died for my sins, that's personal. God loves me, that's personal. Jesus died for me, that's personal. So we have this general belief system in which we trust, but it doesn't take us anywhere. There are individual choices and decisions that we have to make along the line. And Jesus made these choices and these decisions, and we, we would have no Christmas if he had not decided to give up all of his rights. We would have no Christmas if he had not decided to humiliate himself and take upon himself the form of a bond slave. If he had not determined to empty himself completely, we would have no Christmas. And may I say, your world is not going to have a Christmas unless you make the same decisions. This, this, this is the, there's a challenge in Christmas. A tremendous challenge that Christmas presents to us. He was made in the likeness of men, and then he humbled himself, humiliated himself to the extent that he died. You talk about shame. Many of you have grown up in, in, or, in an Oriental culture, and the word shame to someone that's grown up in the Oriental culture has a much deeper significance mm -hmm. than to us Westerners. He chose to take shame upon himself. Mm. This is a huge thing. And if you come from the Orient, you, you need to understand that if you, really, you, you, if you really want to dig into the love of God, you, you, you need to understand that that, that he took upon himself your shame and my shame. We try to do everything we can to avoid shame. But Jesus Christ made a choice. And if you're going to minister in that Oriental culture, you need to be willing to assume shame for other people, say. Christmas has a message for us. So we have the choices that he made. And then we went to, to Isaiah 53. Every time I read this, I just become further almost enamored with this text. It is an amazing thing that God is doing here. And so on page 5, I've taken time to dig into this text just a little bit. And I'd like you to follow with me in that, if you will, please. In the ultimate plan of God to rescue man. Isaiah 52, we, we have to start in the previous chapter and remember that in the, the original scriptures, they did not have chapter and verse divisions. I think a Frenchman was largely responsible for this. He said, how can we find texts of scripture if we don't divide things up? And, and we, so he did. He gave chapter and verse divisions. They're not inspired. He did the best that he could. So sometimes the chapter division comes in the way of the thought. And some, some, amazing, <laughs> some amazing statements in chapter 52. You, you, you have a, a, an extremely positive statement in verse 13. And then you have, it, it just goes to the deeps of the negative in the next verse. And the two are tied together. Now it is amazing to me. Most of us want to go up, but none of us want to go down. We all want to be exalted, but we don't want to be humiliated. We don't want shame and humiliation. We think that we can get to the top without any difficulties and troubles. You see, we, we want to go straight to... That's the problem with the academic system in our country today. We put out MBAs who don't understand a whit about what goes on at the bottom of a corporation and they become bean counters and they go in and tear the corporation up. 
they don't have an understanding that you don't just get there by flying to the top. You work your way up and you go through hardships and impossibilities and struggles and difficulties and trials to get there. And once you get there, you understand what's going on at the bottom. So many of our people want to live at the top and they want to avoid the bottom altogether. And a psychiatrist's offices are full of people like that. Their lives are a shambles because they want to be at the top and they don't understand why they have to start at the bottom to get there. Hear me. You don't begin as a mature Christian. You begin with new birth as a babe in Christ and you begin to put your life in place and you begin to put it together one step at a time, one piece at a time. So you begin at the top. Behold my servant and that's Messiah. My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And we say praise the Lord Jesus. Come today and, and get this over with. Why do we say get this over with? Because we don't want all of this difficulty involved in getting there. That, that's our tendency, okay? Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up, greatly exalted. Now, verse, verse 14, notice the word astonished. I mean, this is just not an amazement. It's an astonishment. What? What? It's something that is totally incongruous, something that is totally does not fit in here. What doesn't fit? Many were astonished at you. His appearance was more marred than any man and his form more than the sons of men. What, what a statement we have here. He's going, he's going to be high and exalted, but there's another part of this thing. And this is the part we don't want to look at. This business of Christ coming to earth, how many great people were there to greet Jesus at his birth? <laughs> In fact, Herod tried to kill him. What a welcome he got. He got the same welcome he gets in, in modern day America. Amen. Happy holidays! No, no, no. Merry Christmas. Amen. You're not going to happy holiday me. <laughs> so, his appearance was more marred than any man, far more than the, star, than the sons of men. And because of this, verse 15, he will sprinkle, notice, many nations. Isn't it amazing that the family of God by the millions in all of the nations of the world today, the amazing result of, of what he did. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what they had, what had not been told them. They will see what they had not heard. They will understand. Now, who in the world has believed our message? You take the part that you like and you throw away the part that you don't like. We, 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 have, we have this Christianity today uh, wealth and health and the American dream and God is a huge ATM machine, machine to give you everything that you want in your struggle to get to the top as fast as you possibly can. Christianity today is upside down and it isn't really Christianity at all. It isn't really Christianity at all. Who has believed our message? The Jews just couldn't figure this thing out. The king had to, the kingdom had to come before Messiah came to deliver them from sin. Amazing, the, 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 the messianic work of being a savior from sin was totally ignored and, and totally bypassed. They thought they had a way out of sin by the Old Testament rites and rituals. They didn't need Messiah. They had the temple and the sacrificial system. I'm talking to people today, I'm talking to men and women today. You have a religious system in place in your life and you don't need Jesus because you're going to depend on that. 
You want to take the heaven part of it, but you don't want to take the sacrifice of Jesus part of it for your sins. And this is what the Jews did. They had everything in place so they didn't need this part of Messiah's ministry. Now, Messiah takes us to heaven. We like that part of his ministry. But to convict us of sin and to deal with sin and to purify our lives and purge us and bring our whole life into the service of the kingdom of God. Now, that's another matter, you see. Those are two dynamics in the Christian life and experience. So who has believed our message? And then you'll notice this wonderful question, to whom is the arm, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So the note that I have in the right-hand column, everything in the verses to follow is accomplished directly by the arm of the Lord. God is at work visibly, dynamically in human history. God, the Son, Jesus Christ, by means of virgin birth, entered into his humanity and entered into his messianic ministry to save us from our sins. Now, the whole appearance of this thing is so deceiving. You need to be very, very careful how you evaluate things. The reason we need the Bible is because things are not the way they look like they are. We need God's word so we know what what God sees when he looks at things. We need the eyes of God. And we, we, we see what God sees through his word. Verse 2, his entry into this world. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. King James says plant. The idea here is a sapling. I don't know if you've ever planted a tree or not. Mm-hmm. A sapling is a tree that is less than four inches tall. It is a very fragile plant. Very fragile. It's not like planting a 10-foot tree with a big wad of, of, of ground around the root system at the bottom. That's what we like to do when we plant trees in our yard. Very seldom will you see people planting saplings. They always want growth because the more growth there is, the, the, the more likelihood is the tree will prosper in its new environment. And the, bigger, and the better the root clump at the bottom. But Jesus Christ came into this world as a sapling, a little child, a little baby. Herod thought he could kill him by killing all the children in the areas around Bethlehem. Very tender, very fragile. God coming to mankind, hear me now, in a sense, not in power, but in extreme weakness. And more, and and then to exacerbate the problem, A root out of a dry ground. This speaks of drought conditions. Now, I grew up on the farm, and if you took dry ground where there had been no rain for six months, it would take a pickaxe to break it up. And if you planted a sapling in that dry ground, with certainty it would die. Everything was most unlikely for his coming. Christmas was not a friendly reception. It was an awful, terrifying condition for the Son of God to come by virgin birth into a world that did not welcome him. The world represented dry ground with no welcome for the sapling that was being planted in it. It was the, it was the arm of the Lord that, that, that was responsible for the, for, for the Lord Jesus Christ and the survival of his life and ministry. So we had very fragile beginnings. 
Growth out of drought conditions, absolutely nothing out of the ordinary to set him apart. No stately former majesty. Nothing to notice or attract our attention. Everything was fragile and ordinary. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. You see, exactly the opposite. God, in a sense, is hiding himself. This is absolutely amazing. We think sometimes that the works of God are so evident there are works of God in your life and in my life in which God is hiding himself and they are works that God is doing in our lives that we do not like and we do not want. The mind of God, the wisdom of God, absolutely amazing, absolutely amazing. In verse number three, he was despised and forsaken of men. He was held in contempt and literally just left behind. We don't need him. He wasn't asked to come along. He was held in contempt and left behind. Pain and sickness, sorrows and grief characterized him. Now, this doesn't look to me like the American dream. What is Christmas about? We're talking about the humiliation of God. Pain and sickness characterized him. He was an embarrassment to his contemporaries. Somebody says, you're a Christian? My God wouldn't do things like he's working. Wait a minute, you be careful. You be careful of what's happening in your life and how you evaluate it. Come on. You be very, very careful. He was an embarrassment to his contemporaries. We are working in a world where people find out you're a Christian. Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> he was an embarrassment to his contemporaries. He was held in contempt, literally, and with no respect. I don't like this Christian business. I remember when I was a teenager in a public high school. I remember. I will never forget that experience. <laughs> a lot of contempt and no respect. Absolutely amazing. Now, there is a very real and certain explanation for this. And this is, the, are you ready now for the personal part of this? We're going to personalize this now, all right? Uh, there, There is... A certain explanation, number, first of all, the pain and sickness he carried belonged to somebody else. Now that's very interesting. He didn't bring that along with him from heaven. No, no, he did not. He picked that up in his life on earth. The pain and sickness he carried belonged to someone else. They were not his own. They were not his own. And you will notice verse 4, the quandary is our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. The reason for this whole mess is us. The reason this all happened this way is because of us. And you will notice the quandary. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. It got so bad that if somebody didn't take this for us and didn't take our punishment and take our stripes and take our weaknesses and take upon him all that our sin brings to us, if he did not do that and take that upon himself, there would be no way that we could get rid of it or be free from it. God also did the same thing to him. He struck, beat, and oppressed his own son. This is amazing. And it is Christmas that 
that brings this all to pass. It is Christmas that brings this into reality. It is Christmas that connects God with our sins in this very personal way. This is not somebody else's sin. This is my sin. This is your sin. It's very, very personal. Verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. He was pierced, crushed, chastened, and scourged for our personal sins. All of the terrible consequences of our sins fell upon him, and we, not he, we are the primary beneficiaries of all that he has done. He did not do this for himself. He did this for us. May I back up and say that again? We are the beneficiaries. He did not do this for himself. He did this for us. How can we ever say, does God really love me? How can we ever do that? How can we say, I don't deserve, we deserve more than this. And yet he personalized this and gathered up what belonged to us and took upon himself, took upon himself our sickness, our griefs, our sorrows, and our sins. Christmas is very, very personal to God. Christmas is a time to worship God. Christmas is a time to worship God. The ultimate outcome is wonderful. In verse number 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Underline that. He will justify the many. I, the sinner, get a new clothing, a new robe of righteousness. I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm acquitted. I'm justified. My servant will justify the many. Why? He will bear, that he will carry their iniquity. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. Because, number one, what did he do? He poured himself out to death. Number two, he was numbered with the transgressors. Number three, he bore the sin of many. And number four, he interceded for the transgressors. This is Christmas. The humiliation of God. God becoming man in order to accomplish this. Now let me personalize this, and I need to move along quickly if I might. You'll notice that I have a highlighted portion in the notes. Our willingness to suffer personally for the sins of others will determine the limits of our ministry to them. If Jesus had not been willing to suffer personally for our sins, forget it. There is no ministry without suffering. Are you listening to me? You serve whenever you can serve your neighbors, you can serve at work, you can serve in the church. But there is no ministry, no genuine ministry to others without suffering. Period. There are decisions that you need to make. You give up your rights. You assume a different identity as a servant rather than the boss, rather than the one that's receiving. You are the giver. And you humiliate yourself in identifying with people that, whose lives are a terrible mess. All ministry involves personal suffering on behalf of those to whom we minister. And this was the point of our Lord's teaching in Mark 8. Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. I need to park here. I should park here for a half an hour. The word deny himself means say no to yourself. 
If you want to, if, if I want to tell you one of the most difficult things you ever do in life, I'll just promise you that I'm right. One of the most difficult things you ever do in life is to say no to yourself. It is hard. It is difficult. You want what you want, and you don't care what happens to other people. We want what we want because we want it. Because we are totally self-bound. We are in bondage to ourselves. We live in bondage to ourselves. And that makes ministry impossible. That makes obedience impossible. That makes good, healthy relationships to others impossible. The only way that your relationships with anybody else are going to survive is if you're willing to say no to yourself. You can't minister if you don't deny yourself. Am I coming through? Mm -hmm. Am I coming through? This is what Jesus did. He decided he would not grasp or hang on to that which was rightfully his. He said no to himself. He emptied himself. He said no to what he wanted because he looked out to us in love and he desired that we might be blessed. Don't ask me how that is possible. But that's how it is. That's how it is. He said no to himself. Take up his cross. This, of course, is the instrument of death, punishment for sin. This is not the burdens that you bear in life. Somebody says, oh, we all have a cross. No, 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 no. The cross is an instrument where we die and suffer for the sins of other people. Not that we do it redemptively like Jesus did. But all ministry involves suffering for the sins of other people. Jesus said, "You, if you seek to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. It's, it's the word which means it's going to go into destruction. If, you, if you're willing to lose your life, just let it go. Let it fall apart. Let, let it be consumed in all of this nonsense of ministry. You'll save it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man? What does it benefit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own? That word soul means life. It's the same word for, for life in the rest of the verse there. It's suke. And as a business transaction, what, what, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What will you trade away your life for? Now, if you trade your life away in ministry, you'll be like Jesus. May I ask you something? How much wealth did Jesus take to heaven with him? How much success did Jesus take to heaven with him? How much? How much popularity did Jesus take to heaven with him? How much of the good life did Jesus take to heaven with him? Did he make a good deal? You see, as a result, my servant will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. He's going to present a host, a multitude of sons and daughters to God in heaven. What's ministry all about? Ministry is all about assuming Jesus' rescue mission and becoming a part of it in the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit. That's ministry. I have a list of great biblical heroes whose personal humiliation was foundational to their service in ministry to God. And I thought about these people. Man alive, Noah. The whole human race was saved through Noah, and yet how many people went into that ark? Eight people. You think of the humiliation that Noah went through. And if you read Genesis, the early chapters, he lived in an extremely wicked day and age. How he survived physically, I'm not certain. Because the world, the earth was full of violence in his day. 
And he walked with God. And he ministered to us. <laughs> We're alive today. Joseph, the years that he spent in chains and in humiliation and, and, and suffering, and out of this came the gestation and the birth of a nation. David, the great king, you know, it's interesting. Why in the world did David, and I think everyone would agree of the greatest of all the kings was David. Because he became the type of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was born the seed of David. Why did God choose David? Because David didn't dig in and say, that's not for me. I'm not going through that. When you read the Psalms and you see what David went through for years after having been promised like a covenant promised by God that he would rule Israel and his offspring uh, and generations to come would rule Israel. David, you know, may I say, suggest to you, many Christians today have forfeited the blessing of God because they say, no, I'm not going to go through that. I'm not going to allow that. I'm not going to let anybody get away with that. Not in my life, I'm not. And we dig in and we're stubborn and prideful. Ooh. So... David was a man after God's own heart. Now, he had one very bad black mark on his, on, his, on his life. But David, in the main, if God said, this is the way it is, David said, okay. If God said, wait, wow. Some of you are waiting today for the answer to your prayers. You're living in horrific circumstances, and you think they're never going to end. That's the way David lived for years. But he was willing to live that way so that God could do what God wanted in his life so that God could make him king in God's way, not in David's way. He started at the bottom. He didn't demand that God puts him at the top. Jeremiah, one of the great prophets whose ministry involved the destiny of nations and his prophecies. Wow. I make you a prophet to the nations, God said. You're going to tear kingdoms down. You're going to build them up. You're going to have this. Oh, oh, oh. You see, Jeremiah... <laughs> down in the dungeon with his feet in the mud, sinking down in the mud. What kind of a price did he pay? He gave his life to humiliation. All of these men did. Ezekiel, the same thing, as he was in, in, in the land of captivity. The Apostle Paul. We all want to have the power of the Apostle Paul. But in Acts 19, God said, I'm going to show Paul how much he's got to suffer for my name's sake. And and we see we see his credentials in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. Imprisonments, beaten times without number, death, dangers of death, uh, five times 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, stoned once, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day spent in the deep, frequent journeys, dangers from rivers. He is our hero because he lived a life of humiliation. The great apostle without a hotel to live in not a place to stay at night. In cold and exposure, sometimes didn't have anything to eat. Now he didn't starve. God didn't let him do that. We say, does God treat his servants that way? No, God doesn't treat his servants that way. The world treats them that way. But God allows it. Why did God allow Jesus to suffer for our sins? You see, ministry, you, you, you suffer for the sins of others in ministry. That, this is the way it goes. I challenge you, read through the Word of God and tell me that it goes a different way. Tell me a better way or a different way that it goes. You'll note the, the highlighted note at the bottom of the page. 
None of these men had a clue as to the reason for which they endured years of humiliation. And I'm speaking to some of you, you're, you're in days of humiliation and God is testing you. You don't have a clue what God's doing in your life and because you don't, you're wondering what in the world and can I... Ah, but you'd better hang on. None of these men had a clue as to the enormity of the historic consequences, and you could underline that, that those two words, the historic consequences of their humiliation and sufferings. They are our heroes. Their names are in Hebrews chapter 11 for a reason. Show me anyone in Hebrews 11 that didn't live a life of extreme humiliation. It was only faith. It was only confidence in God. It was only a willingness to trust God that sustained them on their difficult journey. Remember Jesus said, I wish every one of you were farmers. Nothing lives unless something dies. Everything you eat today will be because something died. If you're eating meat, it's because an animal died. If you're eating vegetables, it's because a plant died. And if you grow a plant, you put a seed into the ground and the seed rots and gives up its own identity into corruption in order that life might be produced and multiplied. The only thing that produces life is death. And until you and I will say no to ourselves, we will be death-giving, not life-giving in the influence and impact of our life. It is amazing in our relationships, whether it's husband and wife, children and parents, neighbor to neighbor, co-laborer to co-worker, boss to uh, worker, employee, in any relationship of life, if you don't say no to yourself and you don't die to yourself, it's going to get all torn up. I promise you, your life is going to be a terror to everybody in your world. That is the way it works. Christmas is about humiliation, the humiliation of God. And if you and I will give that kind of a gift to our family and our friends and our church, our loved ones, if we will be little servants to them, if we will say no to ourselves, be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and give our lives and choose now not to hold on to what is rightfully ours. I got a right. Yes, you do. And if you, you exercise it, you're going to kill everybody in your world. You give it up in humiliation. And then you participate with Jesus, not only in the humiliation, but in the divine rescue. That's the wonderful thing. Lives that are given in this way rescue other lives. There's the blessing of life that you give. You pour your life into the lives of other people. You don't keep it for yourself. You pour it into the lives of other people. And this is what God did at Christmas. He poured his life into us. So the coming of his son, the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. If you have not received him, oh, bow before him now. Cry out to him now, trust him now to save you from your sin. Oh, listen, don't, don't let this humiliation of God be without reason. It was for our personal sins that he died. Christ died for our sins. This is, I think, perhaps the most incomprehensible statement in all the world, in all of the word of God. God, thus, in this manner, to this extent, God so loved the world that he gave 
his uniquely begotten Son, in order that everyone who is believing into him will not perish, but will have everlasting, eternal life. May God challenge us today to be godly, to be godlike, to live like Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be done in the power of the flesh. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we will pour our lives into the lives of unworthy people. We will suffer for, for on behalf of their sins, not to redeem them, but because of their sins. But we will participate in a tremendous mission of rescue that God has ordained through Jesus Christ his Son. There is not a greater purpose for life anywhere. Father in heaven, by your Holy Spirit, teach us how to live. Open our eyes as to divine purpose in our lives. Some people in our, in our audience today are going through enormous sufferings, and the way out is not to say yes to, to themselves, but to say no. No, I will not sacrifice anyone else or anything else because I don't like something or because I think it should be different. I will not do that. I am going to bear under the difficulties brought by the lives of others for the purpose of ministry. I'm going to die to myself and live to God. God, give great joy and victory. May many, may many cry out to the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, save me today from my sin. Son of God, you loved me, died for me, rose again for me, save me today. God, I pray that you'll do this in hearts. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.